episode number 17, Christina Padubiak. And welcome back to The Title Block, the show about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. I'm your host, Michael Cruz, and this week I get to talk with set and costume designer Christina Podubiak. I went down to the Shaw Festival and had a, a bunch of conversations with people down there, including uh, Sula Page and, uh, uh, and William Schmuck uh, and other designers, uh, and I'll be airing those over the next several months. Uh, but first, uh, I just want to let you in. This Tonight, I'm going to the Herald Awards, which is the uh, Alternative Theatre Awards here in Toronto. Uh, it's a bit of a different... Uh, I want to give a little plug to them. It's a little bit of a different award ceremony where the winners from last year uh, get together and as a group uh, decide who each of the uh, winners is going to uh, herald uh, in this year's uh, awards. Uh, and it's set up in a series of houses based on the original... Uh, awardees in this uh, in this system. Uh, I was awarded or heralded back in mm, 2009, maybe? It may have been later. I should have maybe looked that up. That would have been a good idea, eh? Uh, but uh, I was heralded in the House of Bettis, named after Paul Bettis. Uh, and it, it's quite an honor. And I got to honor um, Catherine Westall, uh, who is currently uh, the managing director um, at... Uh, a theater in Montreal. So I'm really happy to be going to that tonight. Uh, the band I play in called the Uncle Red Foundation will be playing there as well. So uh, it's going to be really exciting. So I'll let you know how that goes in subsequent episodes. But um, you're going to be getting this uh, probably well after the Herald Awards um, get through. But you can check them out at uh, Facebook uh, at slash uh, forward slash the Herald Awards. Um, and also on Twitter at uh, Herald Awards. So check them out and uh, get involved in the alternative theatre community here in Toronto. Yes, I was down at the Shaw Festival this year. Uh, I made arrangements to go down to the Shaw Festival to speak with a bunch of designers down there, and I had uh, great help from uh, the head of design, William Schmuck, and the head of lighting design, Kevin Lamott. Uh, I still have yet to book a sound designer. I know it's a big, missing, gaping hole from the catalogue, but... Uh, uh, I really have to make a, a point of this. It's uh, it's exciting. Part of the problem is, of course, as a lighting designer, uh, I don't know much about sound design, so it's uh, it was a bit daunting, but I'm sure in the future we'll have somebody on. Uh, Christina Padubiak is uh, this week's interviewee. You can check out her website uh, featuring work by her and her partner Scott McCowan in Stratford at punchandjudy.ca. There's some great portfolio shots there. I'll be including them some some of them in the show notes. Uh, which you can find at thetitleblock.ca. Uh, oh, excuse me. No, that's thetitleblock.com. Yes, that's thetitleblock.com. Um, excuse me. You know, it's hard to remember things. Anyways, getting on to the interview. Uh, today, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, Pygmalion, which is uh, premiering at the Shaw Festival on June the 5th. This will be up before that. So there will be some spoilers. Um, not a lot of people are unaware of the story of Pygmalion. Obviously, it was based... Uh, it was the, the, the Bernard Shaw play that uh, My Fair Lady was based on, but we're going to talk about the uh, the take 
uh, by Peter Hinton, who is the director of Pygmalion down at the Shaw Festival. So you can get a leg up on seeing that show. Uh, make sure to get down there and get your tickets. It's sure to be a uh, popular piece. So again, check out the show notes at thetitleblock.com. Uh, they'll have links uh, about the people we talk about in my conversation with Christina. And uh, you know what? Let's. I'm just going to stop talking and we'll just get on with the show. Uh, here is my conversation with set and costume designer Christina Padubia. Uh, Christina Patibiak, welcome to the Title Block. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks. Uh, I'm here at the Shaw Festival uh, with uh, set and costume designer uh, Christina Patibiak. She's designing uh, costumes for Pygmalion, which we'll talk about a bit later in the show. But the first thing I wanted to talk about was your early history and how you decided to go into theater in the first place. You were born in the UK, is that right? And That's moved right. To Montreal. My parents came as as. Uh, Immigrants in the mid fifties, um, and uh, I grew up in Montreal, Catholic school system. Um, my parents were ambitious for me, but not necessarily encouraging. Um, in the arts, they were they were um, very keen that I should become a professional and exceed their own education educational chances by by getting a degree I, I did a degree at McGill University um, and then thoroughly disappointed them by deciding to go to the National Theater School it's an interesting theme that happens <laughs> we've talked about that a lot on the title block um, but but still how did you make that decision to switch for, what did you go to McGill for what was your original I did um, English literature uh, an honors degree at McGill um, as as really someone completely unsuited to um, to follow a teaching career because I part of part of that program was was to to speak and to discuss in sort of forum seminar situations and I was terrible at that. Mm-hmm. I knew I wasn't meant for a teaching or academic or career or situations where I had to defend a thesis. Um, but I did become drawn to um, the amateur theater company at McGill. And uh, and I, I did have drawing skills and something of, of a knowledge of art history that had been encouraged at home. Um, and, and those pieces sort of came together. Um, and, and, uh, and one of my fellow class members, Claire Hopkinson, uh, advised me to apply to the National Theatre School, which which I had no idea existed. Um, I, I, d- during the uh, 1967 Expo in Montreal, there, there was quite a lot of visiting theatre companies, and I think that was really a life-changing thing for me. My parents took me to quite a few productions, RSC productions, um, which completely fascinated me. And after that, I started saving money and going to the center or going to Sadie Bronfman on my own. So I, I knew it was um, a keen interest, but it, it just, until Claire said, look at the design program at NTS, it just had never occurred to me that there might be a professional opportunity for me doing design. And uh, what was the process like to get, in, to get into theater, the National Theater School at that point? You had uh, finished your degree in English lit, right? Yes. Uh, what did what was the requirements, and how did you? There was um, uh, an assigned project um, 
which I had really no idea how. I can't, I can't remember. It was a contemporary play to do a set design, I, I think just a rendering and some costume design. I had absolutely no idea how to approach that, but um, I guess as a child, I, illustration was always what I, what I did. I, I read a lot, and I loved to illustrate stories that I read, so, so this didn't seem very different to me. Mm-hmm. It's, it seemed like I was doing an illustration for a book. Yeah. So, so I guess on the strength of that, I had uh, a meeting with Francois Barbeau, and uh, he completely bowled me over, and I just... Uh, it was it was like a big change in direction. I just felt this was the world I wanted to be part of, and uh, I was uh, within weeks. It I I had like changed my hair and left home, and and I was just a new person. It's a fantastic story. Um, once you got out of theater school, did you uh, transition? Immediately, oh, as I hit my microphone, let me try that again. As you got into theater school, uh, did you transition immediately into work, or did you? What was your your first job, for example? I did transition immediately to work um, because I, I was gripped with fear when I finished NTS that I, I because my parents were so against what I had done, I really needed to prove that I was not going to let them be right. Um, so uh, I got work right away as um, a sewer here at the Shaw Festival. I uh, worked in the wardrobe, then moved to Toronto, worked um, for the Canadian Opera Company, and uh, also went on tour with their ensemble as, as a wardrobe mistress. And the uh, following year, uh, became the dyer at the Stratford Festival and spent a year doing that. And, and having close contact with the, with the designers that I idolized at the Stratford Festival. So, so I, I did well initially, and, and I guess it was a fortunate time. I, I was able to find... Um, I, I wasn't ladder climbing in any sense of the word. I, just, I, I, I was just really lucky. And um, what? Just give us a time frame of of uh, when this is occurring. So, what did you early eighties? Okay, yeah. Uh, and who was at the Stratford? Who hired you at Stratford? Do you, remember, do you remember? I don't remember who the head. I think it. I can't remember the head of wardrobe at the Stratford. It was Carol Mulholland, mm-hmm. I believe, uh, who was head of wardrobe at the time, and Gail Tribbick, uh was. So, and Polly Bodinetsky, I have to mention them both, mm-hmm. both um, incredible craftspeople who have passed on the kinds of skills and knowledge that belong to another age in a way mm-hmm. that I fear may never come back again. Um, the ability to, to manipulate materials and to create beautiful things um, in a very demanding way that takes time and skill that may be disappearing from the big festivals. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that in a little bit. We'll talk about this machine down here. Um, now, what was your first design opportunity then? You were, you were working in wardrobe and, and uh, being a craftsperson when you left NTS. Uh, who gave you your first opportunity or, or pushed you in that direction of actually doing your first professional design? Well, Susan Benson 
John Hirsch was the uh, artistic director at the time, and she must have um, gone to him and en encouraged him to um, have me do, I think it was the first season of The, the Young Company, at the Tom Patterson, or The Third Stage, I think it was called at the time. Um, and it was All's Well That Ends Well. Um, Fiona Reed, who I greeted <laughs> yesterday. Um, and it was directed by... Richard Cottrell, a very fearsome British director. <laughs> How was that? I mean, you're kind of, was it, it must have been intimidating the first time. I, the whole beginning of my career was, I always look at it and think it was all entirely intimidating. Every director I worked with for the first five or six or seven years were extremely intimidating. <laughs> it's, it's quite interesting how that has changed. I worked with with Derek Goldby and Richard Cottrell and William Gaskell and Robin Phillips, people like that who, who um, were completely terrifying. And I am actually easily intimidated. <laughs> but, uh, but somehow I did survive all that. <laughs> That's encouraging. <laughs> That's encouraging. Um, and so you started right, but it's, it's incredible that... Um, I mean, most people come out of theater school and they start working in small theater, right? Uh, not making very very much money at all. Um, not that people, you know, uh, are become wealthy working at that Shaw Festival, but but you know, it was you're working for small piece work, um, and must uh, to hear somebody coming out of uh, that program and and working right away at Stratford mm -hmm. uh, seems a bit unusual. Mm -hmm. uh, did you did you miss um, working on the small independent productions? How do you feel about uh, I think trajectory. I made up for that, interestingly, later, because, I mean, after a period of, I, I, I guess, about 10 or 12 years at Stratford, where I did a show every year, I, I don't know, sometimes I wonder if I became more and more spoiled as time went on. Um, and eventually, eventually, you know, the year came where there wasn't something for me for whatever reason. Um, and I did find other opportunities, and I think I learned and enjoyed working with other kinds of, of management, other kinds of budgets, other situations. It took a while. It took a while to sort of learn how to shop at Value Village, and, mm -hmm. and but I, ha I did adjust. Um, and I actually learned to really enjoy it. it was was there a, an assistant program at Stratford? Did you ever do any uh, any of that work prior to? I did. Um, that was uh, sort of the step between the dye room and and my first show was uh, assisting Susan Benson on the Gondoliers, mm -hmm. which was her uh, one of a series of really successful GNS musicals. Uh, and how did you find that experience? Did you, um, I mean, most people when they come out of theater school are not really ready to be designers necessarily just because of the experience. Um, did you, like, what did you take from that experience as an assistant? Uh, Stratford is very much its own world. I, I, maybe this is not the answer to your question, but I think the assistant program that I've seen happen in the U.S. is, is something Perhaps it can't happen in Canada, but a, a, re, a real solid five-year apprenticeship with 
a big designer, <laughs> I often think is, is I've seen that with some sort of friends who have graduated in the U.S. and gone on to, to work with, you know, a Broadway designer. If I had it to do over again, I think I would love that. Um, because because so much of what you learn under an established designer is the painful process you go through as in in the smaller theaters where you're you're um, trying to figure out how to get things done on a small budget and a small time period. Um, yeah, I, I just I don't know if we have the scale in this country for that kind of program to happen. In, in at Stratford, the assistant process is is not re- really that. I, I think it's um, it's a very formal arrangement, and it has a lot to do with really just management and record keeping, as opposed to real training. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once you left. Um, once you so finished at Stratford, what, what, let's talk about just. I want to, talk, to fill in the gaps between, um, you know, having made it, as they say. Uh, were there any kind of were there any kind of um, specific uh, important shows that you did early on that you think made your career, uh, or sort of put you on the map, or uh, or that you took um, that you did and then realized that this is this is what you're meant to do I think there was my first my second much ado as a Stratford on the main stage was was a production that I was very proud of and that was it was really admired because I think by then I I had learned that that what I liked to achieve was a simple design that changes the space in a simple way, effectively, um, that solves Shakespeare, which, which needs a different mood and, a, and different physical space for every scene. Um, I, I, just, I somehow accomplished something, very, a simple machine that, that worked well, and, and that was pretty to look at. Um, that was, the, I guess, the first time I did that, and and I think in my work after that, that's usually what I strive for. I'm not very good at um, multi-set plays, and I'm not very good at uh, highly technical, demanding sets. Um, but what I do enjoy is a simple concept that kind of answers the needs of the play. Mm-hmm. That's what I like to do. Just in your defense, <laughs> I think the first show I did here at Shaw was with, um, uh, I was assisting Rob Thompson, and it was on The Chocolate Soldier, mm. uh, which is a... Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, that was a while ago. Um, but it was, I think, you and you designed it. You were the set designer, costume designer. And uh, for those in the audience who don't know, it's a it's a, a musical or operetta version of Arms and the Man by Shaw, right? And that's a multiple, that's a multi-unit set. Mm-hmm. It had some beautiful 
two-story. There was a mm-hmm. two-story like tower that was up center. Um, it still lives in this town on somebody's estate. <laughs> right? I know somebody bought it right <laughs> after the show closed. Uh, but I mean, that's that's a that's a big monument to the um, not only to your design but to the craftspeople who built it too. But um, it was it was consistent and elegant and. Um, detail oriented and mm-hmm. it fit together like um everything uh, everything was in the same world everything belonged on stage basically mm, um you. and so and, and it was beautiful so uh, um, i mean i appreciate uh your point of view about what you're trying to strive but that multi-unit set was pretty it was beautiful <laughs> it, was, it was gorgeous it was also the royal george which i find less um scary uh I mean, a, a theater that size, I feel I can sort of encompass. And But when I get, I, I did, um, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't admit this on a podcast at the Shaw Festival. <laughs> I did a Major Barbara with uh, Joe Ziegler. And that show was very deeply meaningful to me, not only because I really love working with Joe, but I do really, really, really love the play. Um and I, I did struggle with the size of that, with with how to how to use all that space, um, and uh, it mostly worked. But but there were there were parts of it that I didn't feel I I pulled in to the solution that I would like to have done. Mm-hmm. That is a bit daunting here. I mean, uh, I, I, the, the the Royal George for people who haven't been there. It's about. Uh, was it about six hundred seat theater? I think, mm, if that, if that, yeah, it's not very big. Um, I don't think it's that. No, yeah, it's pro- yeah. You're probably right. Probably four or five hundred. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the balcony. Mm-hmm. Um, but the main stage is quite large, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I imagine the major Barbara was on the main stage here. Mm-hmm. Um, did you? The, I mean, the first the first show you did was at Tom Patterson down at Stratford. The uh, the Avon is it as big as the main stage here at Shaw? I think it's close. Yeah. I think it's close. Yeah. What about how how do you approach that? I mean, Major Barbara is a, I mean, it's a play. Uh, There's some large groups on stage, but it's not a, you know, a 40 person Mm -hmm. musical. Um, How do you reconcile that with doing what is essentially spoken word? on a large stage like that. How do you how do you match the scale of the set to the scale of the drama? Um, what kind of like what's your approach when when you're doing sort of large scale things um like that on stage? Is that a an odd question? Well Shaw is really big and the mm-hmm. I, the ideas in Major Barber are pretty monumental. Mm-hmm. So um so I I, I mean I think Shaw deserves big ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think it was more the the three act the three act nature of it and how to unify uni- unify mm-hmm. that, that's it. I I um, I'm uncomfortable with um, with settings that aren't all of a piece, like going from from a house to. Uh, a working ha- to a, a, a industrial setting to a garden setting mm-hmm. that always daunts me. I think um, because I don't necessarily see a way 
to make it all of a piece. Right. Yeah. I understand. Okay. Now, what brought you originally to, um, you said you worked here originally when you left NTS, but then you, most of your early work was at Stratford. Um, how did you find your way back to the Shaw Festival? Uh, I think just periodically there were years when I traded back and forth or, or worked at both places. M- Marty Meriden did um, a Getting Married uh, at the courthouse, which I think was one of the one of the early productions I did back here at the Shaw Festival in the midst of also working at Stratford. Um, and then over time, uh, sort of the work kind of dwindled at Stratford and became very consistent here, which was wonderful. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, and just before we covered, uh, uh, talk about Pygmalion, I, I, somebody mentioned when I said that I was going to be interviewing today, uh, they mentioned that they were really quite impressed with the way that you can move um, between the large um, you know, machines like the Shaw uh, to small independent company um, with a lot of grace. Like you're able to adapt um, your style to a small, intimate um, in frankly low lower budget um, environment, um, how do you how do you personally find that kind of transfer? Is it easy? Uh, is it just a matter of you know thinking about the keeping the budget in mind, or how do you prepare yourself? Be, you know, be, uh, what's the difference in preparation between approaching the Shaw play to approaching a small independent production? I I find um, what what actually always makes me really nervous is is when a director asks me to do something we can't afford to do um, in a fake way or by relying on borrowing fancy costumes from a bigger theater or I I'm really happy to work I'm most comfortable working within the limitations of what the theater has I, I kind of feel that if a theater is in a certain place and they have X amount of resources, then the production should suit that. Mm-hmm. Um, w- what really scares me is when a small theater with no budget wants to rent all the costumes from Stratford, <laughs> and and I'm stuck with um, a mishmash of things that don't really fit and aren't really in keeping with the nature of that company. I would much rather find, as much as possible, a solution to a play that suits where the company stands um, in terms of their production values. It, it seems dishonest not to do that mm-hmm. to me. Um, I mean, which is not to say you can't... I mean, I think that sometimes leads to great solutions. It doesn't have to be a compromise. And and, you, and it doesn't mean you have to be lazy either. Mm-hmm. You do as much as you can. And as I mean, I've seen... I'm not even talking about myself. There are, there are people in Toronto that are creating incredible costumes and sets with with very little um so it doesn't have to be you know an obstacle at all i just don't don't i i hate the idea of borrowing five thousand dollar costumes to and pretending that they're part of your creative effort i don't like doing that Mm -hmm. And uh, we're, I'm going to stray just a little bit into your process, but when you're actually, um, uh, especially in the area of costumes, I think, because 
in, in the area of set design, I mean, the set's going to be built most of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you may find furniture pieces and props and things, but the, but the set, the physical set itself is going to be some, some sort of construction. Um, whereas with costumes, um, down here you have the opportunity, maybe not to build the whole show, but you certainly can build key pieces. Um, and you have like a, a tailor on staff who can make custom, you know, tuxedos mm-hmm. for people and things like that. So how do you, how do you approach, how does your, your process change when you're, when you're looking at, um, a build of 40 costumes versus pulling, uh, for three characters at value village? Like, how do you, d- does your, does your, um, does your actual conceptual process change? Oh, sure. For sure. I mean, usually, usually your director is already conscious of, of what the what what the possibilities are. I mean, for for Pygmalion, um, Peter knows what what can happen here, and and of course he was wildly ambitious about what we could achieve, and 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 you kind of like sculpt that until until it works for the budget. Um, other places, like I, I've recently done a couple of shows at the Belfry, which I've really enjoyed and I've actually been really proud of. Um, and n- knowing that um, there's absolutely no money to do anything, but but those shows were they were possible in that framework. So that's terrific. So let's 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 go right to um, to Big Malian. First of all, give us a, for those of for people who don't aren't familiar with the play. I'm not quite sure those people exist, but if they do, I want to make <laughs> mm-hmm. sure people know what we're talking about. Give us a, just a quick synopsis of. Um, it's a Shaw. It's by Bernard Shaw, right? Yes. Uh, what uh, What's the What's the quick synopsis of the story and uh, and the context for the for the well, play itself? Of course, Pygmalion is is the play that my fair lady is based on, and of course everybody knows that. Um, Pygmalion, um, there. Are quite a few versions, um, some of which include rather filmic scenes which which were used in the film, but the play version we're doing does not include um, the embassy ball and it doesn't include any cockney dancing in the streets. <laughs> and um, So it, it really just is a five-act story of um, a, a familiar story of uh, a flower girl being discovered in Covent Garden by a phoneticist who who takes her on as on a bet really that he he has the skills to to pass her off as a duchess in six months. So the plays that it's it's the Pygmalion and Galatea classical story of sculpting this perfect woman that he falls in love with. Um, except Higgins doesn't really. It doesn't really happen, but uh, he he pulls it off. He and and his friend Colonel Pickering take Eliza through um, language lessons and takes her very uh, unspeakable Cockney accent and and passes her off at a ball, and uh, and she turns on him. She because he he gives her no credit for the accomplishment. Right. So it really is in some ways. Like many of his plays, a very feminist story. Mm-hmm. And how do you? Um, how did you start to uh, explore uh, the characters' journeys with the costumes? Uh, it looks sounds like um, Eliza's trajectory s- sort of demands that her 
costumes change and reflect your yes. own yeah. emotional state. How did you? How did you? How, how did you begin? How did you find your way into the script? First of all, well, right away, Peter. Um, the uh, in within like four minutes of of picking up the phone, he said he told me he was doing the play Modern, which uh, kind of initially disappointed me because I, I love doing period clothes and people love doing period clothes with me because because. <laughs> Um, craftspeople are nuts for detail. That's why they're there. They enjoy um, sewing on 57 buttons and, <laughs> and doing perfect little French seams. That's what people love to do. And I love to do it too. So I was momentarily disappointed. But then I right away realized that uh, we've had five beautiful period productions of Pygmail in here at the Shaw Festival. And um, I probably couldn't outdo any of them. I would I would do my version of the very same thing. And Peter sold me on the idea right away. And in fact, we both share um, an interest in the writer Zadie Smith. And that was really part of the formation of the concept for this production. Um, so the development of the characters came awfully naturally I have to say it it just there's been almost no nothing to prevent us from conceiving of the characters in Pygmalion as modern day people and and uh it's it's quite amazing Mm -hmm. that's excellent um and now describe some more about the type of research that you would have done A, a modern piece necessarily wouldn't have all the the, the period research that you would have to rely on. Um, it's been more research. Oh, really? really? In what way? It really has. Because, well, this is like a truism around the theater, but I think people who aren't in the theater don't realize how much harder it is to dress people in contemporary clothes than in period clothes. Um, period clothes, generally, I'm the expert. If As long as I pick the right silhouette and the right fabric, and the right color, people believe me that that is what that character would have worn. Um, I have enough knowledge. I've looked at enough photographs and enough paintings. I, I understand the difference between, you know, England in 1880 and France in 1880 and America in 1880. I can get those things right, or what I think is right, just based on my store of knowledge and an actor will come into a fitting room and believe me um i've read henry james i've read um edith wharton i know what butlers wear i know you know when you wear gloves and when you don't wear gloves all of those things are are technical knowledge that you pick up and you rely on the difference with contemporary clothes is I am no expert on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody's really... Uh, well, Charlotte Dean's a pretty good expert on it. And Dana Osborne, they're pretty good experts on it. But really what happens is you realize that every choice you make is so full of information that, honestly, I if, if I put the wrong shoe with the wrong gene. It's, it's glaringly obvious right away. So in order to do this play, which at in some aspects is, is really sort of high-end fashion, 
I, I really did invest in dozens and dozens of very expensive British fashion magazines um, and tried to distill what's going on in the fashion world. But truly, what I bought in September is already oh. <laughs> done. <laughs> so, you know, if I bought those magazines again for this in the spring issues, it would be all over. Uh, yeah, it's much harder, much wow. harder to get this right, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Plus, and on top of that, I mean, added to that, I really can't afford Stella McCartney. So, you know, I can afford Aldo shoes, but I really can't afford, um, I can't even afford Fluvox. So we're trying to get that expressiveness of, of the meaning it's funny, you know, we think our modern clothes are so boring, but in fact, our modern clothes are so full of meaning. It's incredible. It really is incredible when you think about it. Mm-hmm. And how does that reflect in the, uh, in the characters in, in, in the show? Like, to how, um, describe um, the arc of Higgins, for example, and analyze on how they contrast. Um, Peter had this very fascinating idea that, that Higgins sort of lives on the fringes of socially acceptable society Um, and that he cares little for his dress but his mother um, sort of lives in the high fashion world so he has pieces that he's picked up from a rack at his mother's house Um, he's so he's he's a bit of um he's a bit anachronistic and 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 uh in his clothes, his clothing is a bit of a muddle. Um, Eliza, and I think this is really specific in in the play. Shaw has taken her through a journey and purposely presented her in every scene in a, a different guise, from you know the squashed cabbage leaf of Act One. Um, very specific um, instructions that she's she's made herself clean and decorated herself with, you know, feathers in her hat for Act 2. Huge transformation in Act 3, where she, um, which is the big comic scene, where she is really, she has become Higgins and Pickering's puppet. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Act 4, where she is the belle of the ball, the, the... this is the gown that Peter told me to spend the earth on. <laughs> and, and then finally, in Act 5, finding her own footing. Mm-hmm. And, and did you, um, did you, did you is, the much of the show, is most of the show bought? I mean, it's all modern, but did, did you build? We're, what we're making, and, and you'll see the logic of it, is we're, we're making the things that we couldn't afford to buy. So anything that, you know, would have had a price, a whole Renfrew price tag, mm-hmm. we're making because we have we have labor here, so I mean, in fact, you know, a cost a handmade costume here at the Shaw Festival really is worth the same as a Chanel jacket because it's being made by hand. So it really does have the same value. So I can recreate a Chanel jacket, and and it will be every bit as lovely as what you would get on Bloor Street. Um, but I only have a certain amount of labor. So so about I would say. Uh, more than half of the show is coming from the mall. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty, that's that's fine. I can accept that. <laughs> um, 
Now, when you are uh, developing your ideas, um, obviously you do renderings. Um, how do you do you get to a point where you're once you've done renderings, that's what everything is, or do you do multiple um, steps? Like, how do you get to your final design? Well, I process? I I actually love drawing. Um, so I can sometimes be a little bit too precious about it. I do a lot of erasing and changing before I show it to my director, and, and I, I make a lot of changes through that process. Um, finally, I have to add color to it. I don't, I'm not at all interested in working uh, digitally. Mm-hmm. So once I add color to it, I can't really change it. Um, and perhaps I'm not as flexible as some I, I've known other designers to do their final sketch and then be willing to do another one and another one and another one if it's not working um, I'm I'm a little perhaps not lazy but I'm I do get kind of stuck on the final product mm-hmm. and and then any adjustments I have to make after that I make through my fabric purchase or my shopping um, but I will say that I think every designer does this. Um, a lot of it is is kind of strategy. The things that you think might be a problem or might not go over well, or if you're unsure about your choice, you kind of hold your cards tight to your chest and you you hold back on those decisions. You see how things are going. You wait till the last possible moment before you know, you buy that, you know, peacock blue because you're not sure if the actor's going to like it. So it's, it's a lot of it is strategy. Mm-hmm. And how do you deal with the actor's input into their own costume? How do you approach that? Um, do, you, do you give them a lot of leeway or is it a, just a negotiation? Uh, it's a negotiation. And I have to say I kind of mostly have found that a really good thing. Um, I honestly, you know, I I don't really, I mean, I certainly have a vision of, of what I want a show to look like, and I have my own, you know, particular taste and and um, idea of, of, of what I want to put out there. But um, in the end, I really don't believe in in putting an actor on stage in something that they don't believe in. Mm-hmm. Um it, if they don't buy it, then it doesn't work. Then my work's no good. So um, I don't want that to happen. Now, generally, I will say actors are very generous. They, they, a lot of them, in a very professional way, uh, accept that you know the jeans are not really, you know, the ones they would have bought themselves. But they say no, they're fine. Um, but uh, but con- conceptually. I enjoy a little bit of give and take, and and if I can adjust what I've done to make it work better for the actor, that I'm thrilled by that actually. Because otherwise, I I needn't even be here. I could just send my designs and have somebody buy them and cut them out and put them on stage. I I really do enjoy being part of the process, and and where I can make changes that work better for them, I feel that makes my work legitimate. Mm-hmm. And how about working with uh, the craftspeople in wardrobe um, and wigs and everything like that? How do you um, how do you communicate your ideas to them? Uh, like how do you how do you help help them to interpret the rendering 
that you do in order to get a product that you're all happy with, especially with something like hair, which is such a three-dimensional yeah. thing. It's really difficult to render, I think, yeah. something in a, in a two-dimensional way. Um, well, I think my drawings are, are fairly clear. So people, I, I do draw pretty clearly, so I have good communication about that. Um, hair is, uh, it's always problematic. Um, and I think in, in most theaters, we're shifting more and more towards hairdressing rather than wigs mm. just because they're so phenomenally expensive to make and to maintain um and i think there's a naturalism you know that most directors and designers are looking for that that makes wigging really tricky um i do find hats the hardest i don't know what it is um there's a wonderful hat maker milliner here at shaw who uh, seems to understand what I'm trying to get at, but um, I think that's my weakest area of is is trying to uh, come up with hat shapes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, now you had spoken earlier, I think in our in our sort of pre-interview time about the difficulties with maintaining a certain level of craftsmanship, and mm-hmm. that that we're losing a lot of mm-hmm. uh, important yes. and really irreplaceable skills. Yeah. Um, can you describe maybe why you think that's happening and what we can do about it or what the solution is maybe? Um, there are a lot of new skills um, being developed um, along with new materials and, and creative ways to, to make things that didn't exist before. Um, so I guess what I meant has to do more with classical theater. Um, I don't know if... I've already mentioned Gail Tribbick and Polly Bodinetsky, who have both retired now from the Stratford Festival, but these are people who who can recreate jewelry and ornaments and in a theatrical way um, that I haven't really seen in in um in younger craftspeople who rely more heavily on on manufactured um, what's out there that's manufactured shapes and gems and and metal bits, we we tend to just sort of um, use resources in a less uh, I guess it's the old glue gun and wire tricks are kind of being lost. Mm-hmm. Um, Gail wire collars I. I, I, that seems silly, but um, being able to, if you're going to be doing anything in the 17th century, um, the ability to to wire a collar and, on an Elizabethan costume is a really, really tricky skill, or to make a, a crown that, that looks real. Um, those are time-consuming tasks. I guess they've become expensive, uh, but once those, once that tradition is is lost, um, yeah, it'll all move into like what's available at the do- dollar store. I'm afraid. It's mm, a bit disappointing. Um, now, okay, so you've gotten to the point where we are. Um, you're building the costumes now. At, at this point, Pygmalion is a late opener, right here. Uh, or is it June. June. Okay. Yeah. Um, so. You're probably in the thick of it right now. Yeah. Um, what, uh, in between sort of the first, when you've got the shape of the costume, 
unless you've done a first fitting. Um, how much changes between that point and the final edit? Um, is it, uh, I imagine there's not much, but uh, is it, uh, what, what goes on during that period of time uh, for you as a designer? Um, what kind of, um, what are you looking for in rehearsal and, and in, the, in the final performance? Accessories. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm watching rehearsal as much as possible and, you know, uh, sort of generalized sketches of, say, the Londoners in the first scene. Um, there was perhaps not a lot of information back in, uh, uh, you know, December, January, when I was working on this about who these people were. The actors are making that more particular now in rehearsal. And, and so... Where I can, I'm either making slight changes or adding things or just refining ideas so that they more closely match what the actors are, are actually doing. Um, as far as the built costumes go, we, we stick with the plan. We pretty much have to stick with the plan. <laughs> right, you can't go back and, and rebuild yeah. something, right? No. Now, how about uh, approaching um, costume design um, when you're not designing the set? How do you, um, as a lighting designer, I can see, uh, I mean, there are set and lighting designers who design the whole thing themselves, but it, it seems easier to me to, um, to, to separate the two uh, because there's such different um, right. f- you know, f- fields of work. Um, as a costume and set designer, um, how do you integrate your costumes into a set design um, how do you ensure that they like they they both inhabit the same world uh, when you don't have control over both elements? Um, I've I've been doing more and more of of both at the same time. Uh, in this case, uh, e- Eo Sharp. I haven't worked with her before, but I've seen her work, um, and the the hard edges and the simplicity of the set I think are very. Uh, very good for a lot of texture and 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 detail in the clothing, mm-hmm. so I think this will work. I mean, and I I understand Peter's style, and and um, I think Eo's work is is big and monumental, hard edged and very clean. So I I have also kind of kept most of my stuff n- not fussy prints or but quite bold and and graphic so um i think i think i understand what she's going for and and how to to make the clothes kind of look punchy mm-hmm. with with the hard black and white of what she's done and i imagine that you are uh when you were first conceptualizing you had to sort of wait to find out what the set what the the, the major elements of the set were going to be before you started to to really bite into what you were responsible for or did you did it develop at the same time were there any surprises as you went through the process no i mean unfortunately we didn't we had one early meeting together and and uh i i understood that the set was going to be abstract enough that um that what i added to it would would be the the color and the life of the picture so, and I imagine it's Peter's job as the director to make sure that everyone's on the same page. Which he does really well. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, he really does corral everything through his own vision, I think. And, and uh, yeah. 
Great. Um, so let's, we have about 10 minutes left. Let's talk about um, training. Uh, you went through the National Theatre School model, which I don't think has changed that much in the last 30 years. I mean, it's probably evolved, uh, but it's a very practical um, model. Um, and apprenticeships still exist. But as you mentioned earlier, that kind of long, mm-hmm. uh, really in-depth, intensive design apprenticeship is kind of missing. That mm-hmm. kind of model is missing in our country. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think are uh, the benefits of our model here in Canada? What do you think is missing? Um, not just that apprenticeship program, but what do you see from new graduates um, that you think is great? And what do you see that's missing from their training and how can we improve it? There's about eight questions in there where you can sort of start with your general impression of how people are trained. Well, I, I, I can think about two young people that I've met recently. Uh, I would say, you know, the younger graduates today are, are as in every field, incredibly astute and quick and um so so i i don't see any lack that way in in their resourcefulness at all um the young lady that uh was as a student and assistant to me recently i think she was greatly benefited by um having understood how important the text is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and myself, coming from an a English lit background, I'm also like that. I really, I spend a long time on the text. And, and with a director like Peter, you're going to be mining every word, every bit of information, every aspect of the play that gives you a clue to some other aspect. So I would say that's a really important skill. Mm-hmm. I don't know how, how much that's emphasized, um, but I think it's really important. Um, a command of language and, and, and a real understanding of text, I think that's pretty huge. Um, art history, I think that's really huge. Um, Technical training, I can't really speak to because I'm very weak in that area myself and I'm very behind in those skills. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you, just before we go on, you said that um, I don't think I've ever seen, at least in the theater, any kind of computer rendered costume uh, designs. Is that the trend that we're going towards or is it still? Ken, mostly- Ken McDonald can do that and he does it really beautifully, mm-hmm. actually. Is it all rendered like, a, like an illustrator? Like are you drawing on the computer? Yeah. Uh, and then you're illustrating? He does that, yeah. Wow. And he does it really well. Like he, draw, he, he can do renderings that are as beautiful as, an, as a hand-drawn drawing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you think that it's... Uh, well, if, you, if they're as beautiful, then they're, they're, they're appropriate. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Like if, if they're communicating all the, uh, yeah. the elements, then that's what the point is, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's terrific. Now, how about um, theater artists as artists in their own right? Um, I, th- I feel like designers, well, there are designers who are artists. Not all, not all 
designers are artists and not all artists are designers. It's kind of a meld. Uh, do you, do you, what do you think is more important? Uh, like, is it, is being an auteur, um, a helpful skill as a designer? Uh, or do you think it gets in the way or? So what do you mean by being an auteur? Well, somebody who has a very singular vision, like right. I, you know, like a fine artist will have a, yep. will have a street, like a long history of this is what I do. I do paintings in this media and I do, you know, these are my subjects and yeah. and my and my my compositional elements. Yes. Whereas in design, you have to be kind of a chameleon, right? Right. I think that's really an interesting question. Um, I guess I guess the designers that I or the kind of design that I really admire comes from that kind of person. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think of myself as an artist mm-hmm. and and. I think somebody like Michael Levine is, you know, a designer I really look up to as, I guess, what you mean as an auteur. Mm. Um, yeah, we are, we are chameleons. I mean, we all, all have our, our palette that we work within. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is important to have that, too. I, I remember at the National Theatre School, Francois Barbeau saying to us as a class that one of the most important things we learn when we're training is to know yourself. And I, I had no idea actually what he meant at the time. And it took me about 15 or 20 years to actually understand how important that was, um, to, to have some kind of consistent way of approaching your work and to do it in a way that is meaningful to you, to be true to that. And what's, what's changed? Like, how do you work now that you never would have worked as when you first began? Um, I think I'm, I, I hope I'm more actually, I feel like I was a bit of a brat at Stratford. I, as I said, I think I got spoiled really early and I think um, I think a lot of experiences made me a lot more humble mm-hmm. about my work, and I mean I don't. I think it's made me a lot more humble <laughs> and more willing to um, work with the strengths and weaknesses of of what I've got around me, including my own. Mm-hmm. That's terrific. And and the last question, just when we wrap up here, um, what would you? I've had mixed, when I ask this question to other, other designers, there's been, you know, the follow your, follow your passion answer uh, and the what are you thinking answer when, <laughs> when you say when people are considering a career in theater. Uh, what do you think is the important, most important thing to remember for somebody who is either contemplating a career in theater coming out of high school, trying to choose a program or choose, a, you know, a lifestyle, uh, and uh, for the individuals who are in university right now training in theater, uh, what do you think is the most important thing they should focus on when trying to make that decision? And should they, I mean, should they go into theater as well? Is it a good choice? I, I think it's different now because people seem much better at transitioning, at at starting with one thing and moving on through different phases and different experiences. And, um, and I think that's great. I, I don't think anybody who thinks they want to do theater 
should be advised not to do it. I mean, obviously, you need to know that that it's going to be a bit rough and that you're going to have to be pretty resourceful to to make it through those first few years. And you better you better have been through a few connections with directors that feel good to you if if you've you know had two or three or four experiences where you feel you're getting something out of it and you're you're you know if that feels healthy and solid then then i think it, it's it's worth going on but but i do think what's different now is that um that can all evolve over time to into other kinds of work and experiences that's great well thank you so much for being on the title block I appreciate it and that was designer Christina Padibiak speaking to me from the design studio at the Shaw Festival in Niagara on the Lake next time more from the Shaw Festival when I interview set designer Sue LePage the music for this podcast is Podsafe Music from the 1990s called See You by the Lights. You can find them at roughtraderecords.com forward slash the 1990s. Please go to iTunes and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theater design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at the title block CA and on facebook.com forward slash the title block podcast. You can send comments and requests by email to the title block at gmail.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you resist the urge to dance naked in the fountain in downtown Niagara on the lake, and they assure me this really happened, quote, back in the day, unquote. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on The Title Block.